Curiosity. You hear that word a lot on this show, along with the invitation to be more coach-like. But how to actually make that shift? In this conversation, where to start, not only for you, but for the organization. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 520. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. A conversation that has happened many times on the show is the conversation about curiosity, how we as leaders can do a better job at bringing the power of curiosity into our work so that we can really utilize curiosity well to help our organizations grow, perform, and to help grow the careers of the people we have the privilege to influence. You've heard Michael Bungay-Stanier on the show many times, the author of The Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap. Michael's the founder of Box of Crayons, and you heard him talk recently, the last time he was on the show, about transitioning leadership of the organization to a new CEO. I'm so glad to welcome her today. Shannon Minifee followed an unusual path to becoming the CEO of Box of Crayons, a learning and development company that helps unleash the power of curiosity to create connected and engaged company cultures. Her career began in academia, completing a PhD in English, a pursuit driven by her desire to be part of conversations she thinks are important. In 2016, she embarked on a new path, starting a career in corporate learning and development. She brings to her role more than a decade of experience in education and in practicing incisive investigation. She enthusiastically questions conventional methods of organizational conduct and offers insightful and important perspectives on the benefits of staying curious longer. Shannon, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Dave, a pleasure to meet you as well. And thank you so much for that kind introduction. Yeah, and I mentioned in the introduction that you came to the role of CEO through a more unusual route than most people come to a role like CEO. Yes. And you started your career in academia. And I suspect that you've run into things along the way where that's been a stumbling point, where because not being on the traditional path, things have come up as obstacles. But I'm sort of curious where that journey has actually been helpful to you of coming to this role from a different path. Yeah, absolutely. It's it is an unusual and a fast path is is what it has been really. What has been most useful about that about my background probably you know in thinking about trying to crack a language game. So in like this is going to sound sort of what what is she talking about? But you know part of you know literary criticism is trying to understand the language game that the author is playing at and how do I figure out we you know what is being denoted and how do I figure out what is being said and how the signs within the system work. So when I showed up here, there were so many different, if you'll allow me, language games at play. So there was the corporate world, which I had never worked in before. I'd only been a faculty member. There was this world of learning and development, you know, HR, and I didn't know anything about that. So part of it was how quickly can I learn the language because learning and understanding the language is this sort of entree into that world. And so luckily I was pretty good at that. So I was pretty good at picking up jargon and pretty good at recognizing and following patterns. And I think also at being pretty empathetic, which I think is something that is nurtured in, in being an avid reader. And so 
you know, connecting to what is important for people and understanding their perspectives was a, a useful capability I had certainly at the beginning when I came in selling our programs and trying to figure out, you know, what is the real challenge for, for the people who need to engage box of crayon. It's interesting how we do make assumptions because of just the language we've been around in our careers. Mm-hmm. And then when you're pulled out of that, for whatever reason, it, it is interesting that it takes some time to then find your path, right? And that's actually a good lead into one of the statements that I saw in one of the recent white papers from Box of Crayons. And the statement is that advice and assumptions are killing your company. Tell mm-hmm. me what tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean what we've been hearing for years at Box of Crayons is that these client organizations need support with coaching programs that in a nutshell solve the problem of advice killing their companies. So this desire and the habit of jumping into direction, into telling, into whatever form of giving advice rather than holding space and being curious leaders and managers is something that has created a sense of overwhelm for people. It has created a sense of disengagement in teams that are led by by those kinds of leaders. And so it creates organizations that lack connection. Um, and, and those kinds of environments preclude the voice share that's essential to innovation and essential to resilience. And so that is that's the thing that that's killing their companies. You make the distinction between curiosity is being a state and not a trait. Tell me about that distinction. Yeah. So it's it's not it's not my personal just it's really academic part of me comes out and I'm like, well that that wasn't that wasn't my idea. <laughs> so what I think is what I think it is, the key insight from Ian Leslie, whose book length study on curiosity titled Curiosity, I really enjoyed. And you know, that insight was that curiosity is not a trait, but it's a state. And so that means that you're not born more or less curious and stuck that way forever. Indeed, we're all born curious, but that inborn ability atrophies if curiosity is not nurtured. So environments can strongly increase or diminish curiosity. And this is something that certainly educators have been focused on and parents think a lot about. Like, are you responding? Are you asking your kids questions that are yes and no answers? Or are you helping them become more curious by asking them open questions? But interestingly, it seems like organizations have been slower on the uptake around trying to create environments in which their people's curiosity is nurtured and and harnessed so that they are asking more and better questions. It is really interesting when you think about it at the meta level that we mm-hmm. are so, so many of us as parents, certainly in our schools, we espouse the importance. And we're pretty good, I think, in a, at, at a societal level at for children of teaching mm-hmm. curiosity, of encouraging that um, that trait. And yet there is something about when we then get into our professional lives that mm-hmm. curiosity becomes a little bit suspicious. And I, mm-hmm. I, you know, you and I are big believers in curiosity. And I actually think a lot of the people listening to this conversation are big believers in curiosity too. And yet I, I also recognize that there's a reality that when the word curiosity comes up in some boardrooms and in some meetings and some executive leadership teams, there's a subset of people that are kind of rolling their eyes a bit. Mm-hmm. You talk about curiosity in your work of this distinction also between being a change maker 
and being a troublemaker. And, uh, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious how you think about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we definitely sense this, that it feels sort of soft to just stay, to just say, be curious. That's the answer, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. we, we know that the ability to develop and, and to see learning as a lifelong endeavor continues to top most lists of the sought after skills of the future, right? And there's this clear correlation between organizations that have a robust learning culture driven by curiosity and organizations that outperform their competitors. And yet, again, so it feels soft to say, just be curious. Um, and I get the sense, like, like you have mentioned, that people are a bit suspicious of curiosity. So it sounds a little childish, kind of meandering. It sounds almost whimsical. Uh, and no one sticks up their hand and says, no, I'm, I'm against curiosity. But they're also not doing the work, I don't think, of honestly assessing where a lack of curious behaviors is negatively impacting their organization. And there may be stuck a little bit around how to shift things. And, you know, as you mentioned, I think some of the skepticism comes from the narrow way in which curiosity is typically thought of, which is something that we we call troublemaker tendency or troublemaker curiosity. And the way we've described that is that it's fueled by mischief and sparked by prohibition. So that's the, Dave, you mentioned you have young children. I have a four-year-old. I know all about that kind of troublemaker curiosity. (laughs) And, you know, and it can be seen as counterproductive in an organization, but even when it's seen as fruitful, it's sort of, it's still singled out, right? It's like, oh, the creatives are going to have their own area over here where they do curious things and then other, you know, and, and they do all their innovation. And then the rest of the organization is over here getting things done the way, the normal way things get done. So if you distinguish being curious from the usual business of getting things done, it's no wonder curiosity fails to take cultural root because it, it, it's it's outside of bounds of, of the cultural norm. So we see, and we're trying to help organizations see curiosity as a foundational leadership and organizational strength and calling that instead changemaker curiosity. And that changemaker word is really about highlighting what a catalyst curiosity can be when it's really encouraged and supported at all levels uh, in an organization. That's fascinating. And does that language, reframing it to changemaker curiosity, do you find that that changes that response that sometimes people have to the word curiosity otherwise, like we just described? Well, it's an interesting question because on the front lines of of conversations around that, I, th- I think it helps our clients build a, a business case for their leaders around, you know, this is about the ability to embrace the unknown and embark openly on the hard work of, you know, giving up control and being open to new and different perspectives and having that sort of language to distinguish a sort of activated curiosity must be useful as people sell things internally. I'm noticing it as a practice in distinction that other people writing about curiosity are also making. So, you know, the guys who are doing the curious advantage, is it Simon Brown and Garrick Jones and, and one other, they've written about a similar thing, right? Which is that curiosity is very similar to wonder, but, you know, wonder sort of just stays in your head. So they talk about curiosity as wonder put into action. It's got to have this action <laughs> element to it, this change, this catalyst element to it in order to have people sort of wake up to the idea that curiosity is is not is not just whimsical and it is not just, you know, in your head or or for fun. It's going to have some some real impact. 
Yeah, indeed. And of course, with change, that really does start with us. I mean, so much about this mm-hmm. is personal leadership first. And I, and I am interested in what holds us back from being more curious and, and mm-hmm. maybe even like what, assuming we're doing a decent job at bringing that changemaker curiosity into, into mm-hmm. our work, like how we can perhaps if not inspire, at least open the door for others to do a bit more of it. And and you've really identified in your work, there's there's four things that are a bit of stopping points that if, if we can get our heads around that a bit, I think it helps us do better, but it also potentially helps the people around us do better. Am I framing that well? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely, a, there's a number of barriers and some of them are at the individual level. So to your point around, you know, even when we're trying our hardest, you you come up against that internal resistance. And there are also external barriers. So, you know, back to that idea again of curiosity being a state and not just a trait. So at the individual level, the real barrier to being curious is the advice monster, <laughs> you know, and you said you've had Michael on your show before. Yeah. So you've definitely heard him talk about the advice monster. So this is about, you know, it's just really hard to stay curious because there are a lot of short-term benefits to giving advice and to making assumptions and to skipping the time, not to mention the humility it takes to sit in mystery a little bit longer. But it's that exact habit of jumping in to give advice that gets it gets in the way in particular of coach-like curiosity. So, you know, that's when, when we're thinking in particular about wanting to jump in and give advice. There's also a kind of curiosity that is more about empathy, which is my ability to see things from a perspective that's completely opposite to mine and maybe built on a belief system that I don't have. And so all the things getting in the way there are, you know, your subjective belief that your perspective is is the primary one, the fact that we only have our own lens through which we can see the world. So the ability to sort of stand back and be self-reflexive about why we think the things we do and the way that we do is a capacity that being curious builds in people. But that barrier, again, is that it's just really difficult. Like that is our default operating system is the way that we see the world. Yeah, indeed. And one of the things that Michael has taught me that I thought was really helpful was to not necessarily eliminate advice giving, but to mm-hmm. slow it down a bit. And um, I love that invitation from him. And I and thinking about what he said with the advice monster of um, that he might even give advice or even advise leaders to, you know, you still give advice, but to first start from a place of questions and say, well, I'll tell you what I think, but first I want to hear what you think would be mm-hmm. a good way to approach this. And one of the things that I'm wondering about, Shannon, is as you work with managers all over the world, and all different kinds of organizations and cultures, when you see people starting to make a bit of that shift from jumping in and giving advice to a place where they maybe ask a question or two, what helps them to start to make that shift? 
So what, so what we're trying to do in our programs in particular around coach-like curiosity. So that's all about the ability to slow down the rush to action and stay curious a little bit longer. So we start first by helping shift their mindset around why it's important to do that. Because as with any long-term change, which this is a long-term behavior change, if they don't kind of have at the gut level a belief that this change is worth it and that that future me that is going to be able to slow down and ask questions is is who I want to become, then the moments when it's difficult, they're, they're going to just give in. So we start by helping them understand what it costs them to jump in and give advice. So that is overwhelm. It's over-dependence. Their teams are disengaged. They're disengaged. With less meaning comes less engagement, comes less curiosity, comes less learning, comes less innovation. So we build this sort of business case, but also this individual what's in it for me. And then we work to help them understand that the really precise change in behavior that they need to make is around staying curious instead of jumping in to give advice. Because if you frame up the behavior change as, you know, you're going to become a coach, which we're never trying to turn people into coaches, or even you're going to be more coach-like, but that that's still a bit broad. It needs to be whittled right down into this is the key behavior that gets in the way. When you hear something, you want to give advice, that giving advice serves you. It makes you look smarter. It makes you feel in control. It makes you feel like you're helping people, even if you're not. So every time you want to jump in and give advice, you need to ask a question instead. And so when that moment comes, you want to ask a, you want to give advice, ask a question instead. And then when you fail to do that, because you will fail a lot and even really seasoned coach like leaders jump in and give advice and they fail a lot. The final steps around asking yourself what happened there. So it's actually uh, engaging curiosity at sort of a meta level, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> so be curious about why you couldn't be curious. Mm, that's huge. I, I catch myself all the time giving advice, as much as I should know better, as many times as I've read and t- listened about how not to do that, right? Uh, and I, know. I, I love this invitation that you make too of approaching this a little bit of a what's in it for me first. And mm-hmm. and I don't I don't think that's a selfish thing. I think it's a, it's a really helpful practical way to look at it. And from a standpoint of indicators, I'm thinking about that. Like if if I'm a person who's thinking about this as a leader, and I'm catching myself a lot, getting interrupted for mm-hmm. uh, approvals and my input on everything, and people calling me at all hours and emailing me at all hours, I think our tendency as leaders sometimes is to think like, wow, why can't people just like, why am I so overwhelmed? And I hear you making the invitation of maybe, but let's step beyond that and also look at ourselves. Like maybe that's a indicator that I'm not being as coach-like, as curious as I probably could be of like really starting with having people begin to do a bit of that for themselves and not be the advice monster. But I'm also thinking about it through the lens of if I see people on my team, maybe the people I lead, who are struggling with that, who are, are really overwhelmed with getting into pulled into tons of conversations, that that's also potentially an indicator that that's a challenge. And the, the what's in it for me is by getting a little bit better at this, you start to reduce some of that dependence and that, that single point failure system, as the engineers would call it, right, of, of having to have everything reliant on one person. 
Exactly. Exactly. I'm on uh, just coming out of a maternity leave right now, which is a really hard thing to to do as a CEO. Yeah. And so I had to learn this or prepare for it the hard way, it, it, thinking about exactly the, the, what you're talking about, right? Which is, I can't be a single point through which everything has to flow. Uh, you need to push responsibility down to the level that it belongs, empowering people and holding them accountable. And that, you know, I got to see firsthand where we thought we were good <laughs> and where we weren't. And it's it's been a really interesting learning exercise. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. One of the other stopping points for curiosity that you've all identified is complacency. and. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking about the interview we aired last year with Andrea Wainerstrand at Mm -hmm. uh, Microsoft. And uh, by the way, Microsoft, for those who don't know, engaged you all to really help to drive more coach-like behaviors in the organization globally. And you cite Microsoft as a really positive example of getting, you know, maybe being in that place of complacency for a bit, but really making a shift from that. And I'm wondering if you could say something about like how complacency shows up and what they did in particular that helped to to shift that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's by Nadella's own admission had to do with with complacency, with being sort of comfortable. I think the way that he's described it in a lot of interviews he's given on the subject is that they had stopped being curious about their customers. And that's part of what makes you get exposed to disruption. So he talks about wanting to get wildly curious about their customers. And of course, the the phrase, and I think Andrea shared it as well, that describes the shift is about going from a know-it-all to a learn-it-all culture. And so we were one of, of many partners that they engaged in thinking about how do we transform the way our managers show up as coaches, asking better questions, you know, get, getting people more engaged increasing that accountability, having people ask more questions at every single level of the organization helps people to reduce that sort of siloed thinking that creates infighting and competition and, you know, decreases the capacity for innovation that they need to remain competitive in the market. Satya Nadell is such a great example of really reframing things. Uh, just such a mm-hmm. such a brilliant leader in so many ways, and I wish every leader <laughs> had that insight to really look at that that way. For those that might be in an organization that isn't quite as forward thinking or or self aware as as mm-hmm. Microsoft was on this, what's something you've seen with an organization you've worked with that mm-hmm. maybe was in a bit of that complacency trap and help them to make the shift a bit away from that. Okay, so one of one of the barriers to curiosity really being able to transform organizational culture is the environment. And there's particular environments that really really require the openness and the receptivity to people stepping up and asking questions. Uh, a really good example of that is in healthcare. So we've got a number of clients in healthcare, which is, you know, quite literally a matter of, of life and death. And we've worked with organizations who are struggling with the sort of hierarchies of physician-led teams who don't respond well to being asked questions, you know, of their nurses, for example. And teams that, you know, have stand-ups and and safety sinks every single day where there are so many opportunities to make little adjustments, to discover where the problems are, if they can just 
be curious and remove the the hierarchical thinking that is associated with with asking questions as a way of challenging authority. And in the organizations we've worked with, they've seen a lot of success in creating a common language and a common acceptable behavior that is about every time we get together, we are going to be really, really curious about where the problems are because as, as a practice, it helps them to really quickly identify changes that need to be made that save lives. Oh, interesting. What's an example of that common language that has emerged somewhere that's been useful of helping people make that shift? Yeah. So this comes down like really simply just to the to the questions. So when in an organization that isn't used to people being more coach-like, if you go to somebody, you ask a question and they don't give you an answer, but then said, they say, oh, really? And what else? Or what's on your, what's on, what else is on your mind, Dave? Or tell me a little bit more about that. If you're used to a sort of rigid system in which I bring my leader a question and that leader provides the answer to me, you know, it's kind of like the, the person's going to be like, were you on a, did you go on a training or something? <laughs> Why are you asking me a question? <laughs> so, you know, in these organizations, the going in and making that, you know, acknowledging, hey, this is going to feel kind of weird at first. Asking these questions feels a little strange, but let's just stick with it because I'm practicing really hard to not jump in and give you advice and not, and not to give you direction, but to ask these questions that hold the space for us to solve these problems that are really, really critical. So the common language is actually just around the questions. Yeah, can I add two things to that? I mean, I'm thinking yeah. about what you just said, and I'm so glad you mentioned this. Occasionally, someone has messaged me or said, you know, I tried Michael's question and what else, and mm-hmm. people just stared at me. <laughs> And like, what what yeah. happened? Did you read, like you said, did you go to training? Did you read a book? And then they stop. And I think that the invitation I'd make is not to get too caught up in the the exact literal question, although it's a wonderful question and it does work a lot, but to really make the shift to the mindset a little bit more. Yeah. And, and then the other thing that what you said made me think of that I just think is such an important thing to do is it doesn't need to be a secret, right? (laughs) Like you don't need to like show up one day and all of a sudden like you're starting to be coach-like and curious and people have never seen that before is it's, it's okay. And in fact, it's probably a good idea to espouse that and say, hey, I'm trying something new. Or maybe we as an organization or an executive team are trying something new and it's going to feel a little weird at first, and maybe it's going to feel awkward, and maybe some of the questions are going to seem different than what we've asked in the past, or you're going to hear more questions. And that's intentional because we're working mm-hmm. to become more coach-like, or, or some version of that, I think would help in a lot of cases to, to really accelerate that. Absolutely. And in one of the hospitals that we've worked with, that's exactly what the president did. So she, the sort of apocryphal story is that she walked into her all hands meeting with, you know, to your point, it doesn't, it's not that like fidelity to the exact questions is the thing that matters, but it's about, you've got to start somewhere, right? And people don't know the questions to ask. And and so she walked into all hands meeting and she put down one of the cards with the questions on it. And she said, we're going to use these questions to run our meeting. And so it was a really open, I'm struggling with this. Here it is. <laughs> it was totally a moment of of espousing that as a value and doing it really publicly. And that's made it that's made a huge difference in that particular healthcare system. Oh wow. Thanks for sharing that. That's that's huge. I th- and I think that's the thing sometimes leaders miss is we feel like we have to do this all ourselves and figure it out first. And we don't necessarily 
do what John Stepper would say, working out loud, right? Like <laughs> demonstrating that we're learning too, and we're trying to yeah. get better. And what a great, what a great message to send people like, Hey, I'm, I'm learning new stuff too. I'm trying new stuff uh, just like you are. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other barriers to curiosity is delusion. And mm-hmm. I am, I am reminded often of this beautiful quote about communication, and I forget who said it originally, but the uh, greatest enemy of communication is the illusion of it. And yeah, the illusion has taken place. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that that's very true as well with curiosity of um, uh-huh. leaders and organizations feel like they're very curious, they're very coach-like, but in reality, they're not. And when you see that, what is it that helps people to see a little bit more and to start to recognize like, oh, maybe we aren't quite as, as good at this as we thought we were. Yeah. I'm thinking of uh, one one client in particular who I, who I won't name <laughs> that, that suffered a bit from this delusion barrier. So they came to, to see that they were suffering from that delusion after doing a series of of assessments. We didn't run the assessments, but we worked with them after they had the results of their assessments. So assessments that basically showed that their ability to create empathic and supportive environment in which people felt safe to ask questions was seriously lacking. And they thought that they had what they needed and that they had teams and reports that felt comfortable asking questions, pushing boundaries, and all the things they would have to do to to remain competitive in the markets. And when they learned that their all of their reports, this is the most senior leadership team, felt that they were lacking pretty serious self-awareness around supporting that kind of an environment, they were shocked. Um, and they they engaged us to to go through the programs in order that they could not be sold on you know the importance of of coach like curiosity because they had they were seeing how that was impacting their ability to be competitive but to be able to practice that and part of that for them was about letting go of for them a much needed sense of control so there was a lot of overreach which overreach was you know reducing the amount of the level of empowerment that their direct reports could could feel at any time. And so having them, you know, delegate in the way that coach like leaders can was a really important part of them aligning their sense of the kind of organization they were running and the reality of, of that organization for the other people in it. Shannon, thank you so much for sharing all these examples. I know it's going to be really practical for those of us who care a lot about curiosity and being more coach like to do more of that ourselves, but I think perhaps even more importantly, be able to start to think about that in inspiring that in the broader organization. So I have two invitations for everyone. The first invitation is if you have not yet read The Coaching Habit or The Advice Trap by Michael Bungay-Stanier, the founder of Box of Crayons, I would recommend both of those books. And if you haven't read either, starting with The Coaching Habit, I think is a wonderful place to start. It is the foundation for how you as an individual can really become more coach-like, more curious, and open up so many opportunities to not only grow the organization, but to grow the careers of the people around you and you. And then the second invitation I would make is perhaps you are already, as I know many of you are familiar with the coaching habit and the framework that Boxacrans has taught for years. Um, and now you're thinking, hey, I'd like to really help others in the organization, maybe the 
maybe our team, maybe the organization as a whole to do this better. Shannon's organization is just doing such wonderful work with uh, companies of all size. Yes, the large companies like Microsoft, but also small organizations too. And I know we have many listeners, Shannon, who have engaged with your work over the years and have used it to help their teams be effective. So if that is you, I would also invite you to hop onto the Box of Crayons website. We're going to put a link in the episode notes, and I'll also put it in this week's weekly leadership guide so that you can reach out directly if you think they might be helpful. And by the way, Shannon, is there a specific link that's best for people to go to, or is it boxofcrayons.com? It's boxofcrayons.com. Yep. That's easy. Good. Okay. So all that coming in this week's weekly leadership guide. Shannon, I have one more question to ask you. As you know, I often ask people what they've changed their minds on. And you have had a very significant role shift in the last year of becoming CEO of Box of Crayons. And since you've become CEO, what have you changed your mind on? Yeah, I've changed my mind on this story I've been telling myself that I like to work alone. (laughs) So I am sort of, you know, give me the 13th floor of a library and a pencil and I'll see you in a few years. That's kind of been how (laughs) I've been used to working. And I've changed my mind about preferring working alone. I love leading a team and being being a part of a team. And that's, that's a pretty big change of mind for me. What changed your mind on that? I mean, it's, it's part of what we're preaching at Box of Crayons. It's a great conversation one has with oneself. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, the conversations you have with yourself are really important because in some ways, you know, getting to know yourself is really important before you can kind of meet others where they are, but it's not so much a loneliness as a lost opportunity of that lack of collaboration, that that lack of of voice share. You know, I I was set out for a potentially much lonelier way of working for my life before I I changed course, and it's just it's just a really like fulfilling and richer experience being part of that team and part of that collaboration. Shannon Minifee is CEO of Box of Crayons. Shannon, thank you so much for your wisdom and leadership. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. (laughs) If you've been listening to the show for a while and have not yet come across the Coaching Habit book by Michael Bungay-Stanier, that is also a wonderful entry point for stepping into curiosity. Thank you so much, Shannon and Michael, for your work. If you found this conversation helpful, several related episodes I'd also recommend. One of them is episode 404, How to Build Psychological Safety with Amy Edmondson. You heard echoes uh, in this conversation about the importance of culture and team and establishing that in order to bring out curiosity and psychological safety, a key component of that as well. In episode 404, Amy and I talk about her groundbreaking work on psychological safety, how to build it within your organization, and how to do it even if the larger organization isn't quite with you there. That's a great compliment to this conversation. I'd also recommend my most recent conversation with Michael Bungay-Stanier on his book, The Advice Trap. We talked about in episode 458, the way to be more coach-like. If you, like me, are always looking for ways to be more coach-like, episode 458 is a wonderful starting point for you. And then finally, you heard us mention Microsoft's work and working to establish more coaching as part of their culture. In episode 501, I was pleased to welcome Andrea Wannerstrand to the show. She walked us through what 
Microsoft has done in recent years to build a coaching culture. And Andrea was at the forefront, her and her team, of bringing that cultural change to Microsoft and working across the organization and with Box of Crayons in order to do that. Uh, that episode's called How to Build a Coaching Culture. And again, that's episode 501, another good compliment to this conversation. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. One of the topic areas listed inside the membership library is coaching skills. Many conversations we've had over the years on coaching skills and, of course, so many other topics around organizational change and culture. If you have not yet set up your free membership, that is the very best way to get the most value out of the website and all of the past episodes because you can search by topic. So if you set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, you'll be able to search by topic. Plus, you'll get access to my own personal library, all of the free audio courses that are available on the website, the highlights from interviews and books I've read, plus a ton more that are all included in the benefits of free membership. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go to set that up. In a few seconds, you will be off and running and have full access to all of the content on the site. Next week, I'm inviting you to join me for a conversation with Raja Rajamanar. He is the chief marketing officer of MasterCard, and he's going to be inviting us to make the shift from advertising to engagement. Join me for that conversation with one of the leading thinkers in marketing today. Have a great week and see you next Monday.